you know, I was talking to my wife and she was like, hey, you know, you've got all this experience from your job, but you also understand investment more on the capital side. Even though it's on a smaller scale, you know, you, you understand kind of both sides of the equation. Why don't you just start a company and do that? You know, like, why are you trying to invest in these smaller projects by ourselves, you know, while you're working in this job for somebody else doing this stuff, you could just combine them. I was like, yeah, well, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Why don't we start a, you know, I guess a commercial real estate investment company we did. And, you know, we just kind of landed in new development from there. You know, and, that, and of course, that combined with moving to Austin, which is very development friendly and has a housing crisis that they're actually proactive about trying to address. It was kind of the, the perfect storm coming together of building this company. This is the We Love Real Estate podcast. My name is Sean and I love real estate. In this weekly podcast, we interview the top real estate investors and professionals who share their knowledge and expertise to help you become a real estate investing boss. So if you love real estate and want to level up your investment game, then you've come to the right place. And now, on to the show. What's going on, investors? And welcome to episode 270 of the We Love Real Estate podcast with Sean Pan. On today's episode, we have Andrew Brewer. Andrew is a real estate investor and developer, and he's also the owner of Iron Gall Investments, a real estate development firm in Texas. In this episode, Andrew will share how he started investing in real estate, his transition into the development side, and how he started his own real estate development firm. He'll also share his methods of structuring new development deals together from the lessons that he learned from the past. So if you want to learn more about real estate development, then you need to listen to this episode. As always, if you're an active real estate investor and you need a harmony loan for your next project, then you can reach out to me directly at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Enjoy the show and I'll see you next week. All right, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. Let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Uh, yeah, so my name is Andrew Brewer. I am uh, a real estate investor, developer. I own Iron Gall Investments, which is a real estate development company based out of Austin, Texas. And I do development projects. Uh, and I also do value add projects through that company. Uh, most of our projects are located in the Austin and San Antonio markets in Texas. You know, because I like to be close to projects, you know, when you're the operator project and, and you got to be hands on, it you know really helps to be near projects. It's kind of hard to keep as close of an eye as you need to have uh, on a project if you're out of state. So that is what I do. We have projects that we're the lead sponsor on. We also co-sponsor projects. Uh, so we have five projects right now that we're the lead sponsor on. We have a number of co-sponsored projects as well. We've also managed projects third party as well. So that's me. It's my company. That's what I do. I guess in addition to, to that, you know, I also, you know, I'm married, I have kids, you know, I have a family. I do competitive FA fencing. So pretty good at that. Uh, you know, just like music and, you know, other, other stuff that normal people do, I guess, you know? Yeah. Awesome. And Andrew, we met what, three years ago or so? Something like that. When, you know, you were attending my meetups back in the Bay Area. Yeah. Yeah. But back in the Bay Area, right? In San Jose, when we still have live events before the whole world shut down. But now you have moved. So tell us about that transition. Like what made you even want to move to Texas in the first place? Uh, yeah. So I, I mean, I have a lot of family in Texas. So uh, my, my grandparents live here. You know, my dad has seven brothers and sisters and, and five of them live here now. My dad lives here. My mom lives here. So I, I have a lot of family here. So that's one of the reasons that I wanted to make the move. I grew up in the Bay Area in California in a, in a little town called El Cerrito, which is just north of Berkeley. 
so I spent, you know, first 20 years of my life up there and then I moved away for a while to, to Denver and Boulder and Colorado. And then I spent some time in, in LA. I finished my undergrad at UCLA, uh, which I think you also went to UCLA, right, Sean? So that's right. Yep. So I was down there for a few years and then moved up to San Jose, uh, for a job there. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a struggle in the Bay area, you know, so my wife and I were having, having a rough time making a go of it, you know, cost of living is really high. And especially as someone just coming out of, you know, adolescence and, you know, young adulthood, it, it's kind of hard to get a foothold in the Bay area. I found, you know, particularly if you don't have a really high earning W2 job, or if you don't have a lot of family support, um, and I didn't, you know, have either, I wasn't, you know, in tech or, or anything like that. So it was just kind of hard to, to get started. You know, real estate prices are really high. I, you know, wanted to invest in real estate and I just simply didn't have the capital to break into the market in the Bay Area the way I wanted to. So started looking out of state, you know, first investing in Kansas City, uh, where my grandparents used to live. Uh, and also my wife's best friend from high school was living there at the time. And, you know, as we were going through that, realized, you know, my wife and I didn't really like investing out of state, you know, we want to be a little bit more hands on. So we started looking for, you know, markets that we could move to other places in the country, uh, where we could have a little bit of an easier time. Uh, you know, I have two stepdaughters as well. So we wanted to, you know, provide a better standard of living for them, you know, have, you know, a house with a yard where they could play, you know, more of a neighborhood instead of just, you know, being cramped in little apartments in the Bay area. So just made that, that move out to Austin, uh, and, and in Austin, you know, they're, it's very developer friendly, uh, perhaps not in, in Austin proper, but in, you know, surrounding suburbs and, and the overall MSA, you know, Texas is just very business and development friendly. So we were able to get a lot more traction in that market than we were in the Bay Area where they're very anti-developer. It's really hard to, you know, acquire land, get anything over the finish line. You have to have really, really deep pockets in order to develop anything in the Bay Area. So that was that was kind of the reason for the move and, and how that happened and couldn't be happier about making the move. So let's talk about your start as a developer because, you know, you said you started out just buying, you know, like a single family home, a normal rental property over in Kansas City. Jumping from that to development is a pretty large jump. So how did you go about making that? It is a pretty large jump. But, you know, I guess the, the main thing there that, you know, perhaps differentiates me a little bit is the, the W-2 job I had. So uh, when I was living in San Jose, uh, I was in charge of the tallest building in the city, which is a 27-story mixed-use commercial residential high-rise that is about half a city block, over half a million square feet. So when I started in that job, I was a utility engineer in the facility and worked my way up to assistant chief engineer. So initially that job just encompassed, you know, being the on-site facilities engineer, doing asset management, working with the property management company. The, the building is uh, owned and managed by an HOA that, you know, encompasses the residential owners and the commercial owners and whatnot. So my company was contracted by the master HOA board to provide engineering services to the facility, which we did. Uh, and then while I was there, the building was experiencing a lot of, a lot of problems, like a lot of, you know, leaky windows, uh, pipes breaking all the time, just kind of general issues. And 
we were approached by a law firm out of Las Vegas, uh, and they basically asked the HOA, you know, they said, Hey, we, we hear that you have a lot of, a lot of problems in your building and it's a relatively new building. It was built, you know, between 2008, 2009, and that's not very common, you know, like that, that shouldn't be happening. These kinds of issues that you're having shouldn't be happening at this point in the building's lifespan. We think that there might be a potential lawsuit here against the original builder for construction defect. So the HOA signed with this law firm and to sue the original builder, uh, which we did, you know, and, and my company as the company that was handling the on-site engineering. I should clarify there, actually, that company is not the company that I own. It's the company that I was working for. It's uh, an engineering firm. So I just want to make that distinction. But we were brought on as consultants in that lawsuit. It was a large lawsuit. It took about four years. You know, it was for $60 million is what we sued the builder for. And, you know, basically we had to go through and, you know, comb through, you know, stacks and stacks of old records, you know, old maintenance records, binders, like all this kind of stuff. And then work with the experts that the law firm hired to go through and say, you know, okay, all of these issues are happening. Why are they happening? What's the reasoning behind it? And we had to go and to court basically and prove like, hey, you know, these leaks are happening because of, you know, improper installation, you know you know, the wrong type of material was used, you know, they didn't use the right kind of rubber and, you know, the window seals, you know, they didn't use the right kind of gaskets in the plumbing, stuff was installed improperly, just all this kind of stuff. So we went through that lawsuit, we won, we got the settlement, you know, the law firm took their cut, you know, massive cut (laughs) out of that. And then we turned around and used the proceeds to do a reconstruction project on the facility. So that was a massive commercial reconstruction project was about a $13 million project. And in that, you know, we, we repiped the entire building, you know, ripped out all of the plumbing, every single pipe in the building, put it all back together, you know, took out all the windows, redid all the windows, you know, we had to, to redo the pool. We had to just, it was like everything had to be redone, you know, re waterproof the foundation, like, digging up sidewalks, like all this, all this kind of crazy stuff that we had to do. Uh, and of course, you know, we had to negotiate with the city throughout that because you have to get permits to, to do that kind of massive work. So I gained just a lot of experience from that, that job, right? You know, we just going, you know, through this construction defect lawsuit, this reconstruction project, you know, it was a huge learning experience. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, I was, also investing, you know, my own projects on the side, you know, buying, buying rentals and, you know, be RRRing and, and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I was talking to my wife and she was like, Hey, you know, you've got all this experience from your job, you know, where you're doing, you know, these lawsuits and commercial reconstruction, all this kind of stuff. But you also understand, you know, investment more on the capital side, like you understand what it takes to put a deal together to structure it, what the capital stack looks like, you know, you have to, you know, source debt, you have to source equity, all this kind of stuff, even though it's on a smaller scale, you know, you, you understand kind of both sides of the equation. Why don't you just start a company and do that? You know, like, why, why are you trying to invest in these smaller projects by ourselves, you know, while you're working in this job for somebody else doing this stuff, you can just combine them. I was like, yeah, well, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Why don't we, why don't we start a, you know, I guess a commercial real estate investment company and we did. And, you know, we just kind of landed in new development from there. 
Um, you know, originally we were kind of doing some, some value add multifamily stuff, but the market has just gotten so tight there, you know, cap rates have really compressed. You know, there's a lot of, of new syndicators in the market that are, that are trying to snap up existing buildings, you know, in my opinion, really overpaying for a lot of stuff. So new development was like, Hey, you know, this is kind of a niche that we know how to work in, that we can work in, you know, let's, let's kind of go that route instead of trying to know, batter it out with, you know, these hordes of new syndicators coming out of these coaching programs. So that's kind of how we, we ended up there. And, you know, and, that, and of course that combined with moving to Austin, which is very development friendly and has a housing crisis that they're actually proactive about trying to address. It was kind of the, the perfect storm coming together of building this company. So when you were first getting started, it's very hard to start a development company by yourself, I assume. Who did you bring on board to help you start this firm? Uh, so I have I have one partner that I work with on on almost all of my deals, um, and he you know his background is that he grew up building houses with his parents. You know his parents owned a home building company, uh, a spec home building company, and you know he then branched off you know from there. You know kind of once you know he got to to be an adult, he went off worked for for another company for a while, and he was the kind of the land acquisitions and development guy uh, for that company. And we, we teamed up on, on a smaller project I was doing in Austin. You know, I was kind of having, having some issues with that project, uh, negotiating through it. And, you know, we kind of teamed up, brainstormed on how to solve that deal. Uh, and from there, we're just kind of like, hey, like we, we seem to work pretty well together. You know, let's try to do some other deals. We started doing, doing more deals. You know, we've done five deals together at this point. Uh, but he's really been been my main partner in in all the deals that I've done. I have some some other partners that I do work with. You know, I often partner with people as key principals to help sign on loans. Uh, if I don't have the net worth to to take it down myself, uh, you know, I'll often partner with people to raise equity for deals. If I don't have the capability to raise all the equity myself, sometimes I'll bring in other outside partners to fill a gap in my knowledge. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. There's a current deal that, that we're working on in Seguin, Texas. It's going to be a 330-unit ground-up apartment development. And that's going to be an institutional-grade asset. You know, likely will be sold to a private equity firm. When we're done, we'll likely need to partner with a private equity firm to do the build and get it over the finish line. So because of that, you know, I'm like, I, I know what the target audience is, but I... I'm not going to say that I'm a good enough underwriter or I'm as well versed with private equity to tailor a deal to meet their requirements. So, you know, I have a friend that works at a private equity company, you know, I called him, brought him in, was like, Hey, you know, I, this is what I need on this deal. Can you help me underwrite this deal? Can you help me structure it and tailor it to a private equity firm and what they would want to see if they were to sign on to an, an investment? And, you know, he said, you know, yeah, let, let's do it. We've been looking for a deal to do together. So, that's that's how I end up partnering with people. You know, I don't have very large team at Iron Gall Investments. Uh, a lot of it focuses around me, but but I bring in people as needed for various deals. You know, everybody's kind of got their their niche that they work in. You know, and so sometimes people don't like to step outside of that. But mostly, I partner on a per deal basis with people. But I, I usually have regular people that I go back to. You know, kind of give them the right of first refusal, I guess, as it were, you know, it's like, Hey, I'm working on this deal. Do you, do you want to be a part of it? This is what I need on it. And, you know, people either say, you know, yes or no, or, 
you know, sorry, I'm too busy. I can't work on that deal also, you know, or yes, I'd love to work on it or just whatever fits for them. And for your first partner, how did you get in contact with him? That was actually through Facebook, believe it or not. You know, I'm part of a bunch of, you know, real estate groups, you know, in, in Austin and, and nationwide on Facebook. And, you know, I just, I was kind of getting frustrated with this deal I was working on in downtown Austin and I was kind of hitting a wall. So I just, you know, kind of put out some, some feelers in a few Facebook groups. which is like, Hey, I'm, I'm like hitting this problem. Has anyone ever, you know, hit this issue before, you know, would be willing to, to have a chat and, and he hit me up. He was just like, yeah, you know, I, I think I got a solution for you. You know, let's, let's talk about it. And we did. And we just kind of went from there. So let's talk about it. Like, that's it. You moved to Bay or sorry, you moved to Austin around to June of 2021. Right. And I'm assuming that's around the time when you quit your job as the facilities, you know, uh, engineer. And then you, um, I guess had to find that first deal. Did you find it after you moved or before you moved? Uh, so I actually found it before I moved. So, you know, I, you know, the first development deal I was doing as a sponsor was, you know, about a year before that. And, you know, really, I ended up quitting my job after I was making enough money and had enough responsibilities in Iron Gall Investments to, to actually quit my job and be able to support myself. So, you know, my partner and I were working on a big deal up in Taylor, Texas, starting kind of at the end of 2020. Uh, we kind of worked on it for a while and then eventually got under contract and, and started moving forward. And we closed on the land for that deal basically right around when uh, I quit my job. So, you know, that project really ramped up at that time and I needed to, to devote a little more effort to kind of getting all the pieces in place to get it started. And then, you know, once that happened, we just started looking for more projects and doing more. And how did you find that first deal? That deal was, it was actually on market. Uh, my partner found it. He brought it to me, uh, you know, and said, Hey, you know, I, I think that this, you know, this could be a good deal. You know, it, it was for, uh, you know, six and a half acres. Uh, you know, it already had a site plan on it, you know, so we could kind of see the vision there. Uh, but you know, for me, I'm, I'm very detail oriented. I'm all about the numbers, you know, it's, you know, you can't be emotional in investing in real estate, especially, you know, large multi-million dollar projects where you've got a lot of, a lot of limited partner capital on the line. You know, you've got a lot of, of, of other people in the deal that are trusting you and they're trusting that you know what you're doing, you know, so you can't afford to, you know, say like, well, I want to do this project for my own reasons. You have to say like, no, do the numbers make sense? You know? do the market, you know, metrics make sense, you know, are all the boxes checked here that, that say that, that this project is in all likelihood going to be a successful one. I mean, there's no guarantees, but you want to de-risk the project as much as possible. So that one, that one was on market, you know, and, and it was in Taylor, Texas, which, you know, in this October of 2020, when we started looking at it, you know, Taylor, Texas, you know, wasn't anything at that time. I mean, now it's all the news, right? Because Samsung's going in, you know, they made their their big announcement that they were going to be coming to Taylor in like, was it September, October of last year? But when we started looking at it, you know, there was nothing out there. I mean, I would go to, to meetups, you know, here in Austin. You know, there were a few in-person meetups happening at that time. You know, I went to a few, um, you know, talked to people about this deal, you know, looking looking for partners, trying to figure out how to, you know, get the right team in place. And, you know, people would just look at me like I was crazy, you know, they'd be like, Oh, Taylor, like, why are you going to Taylor, Texas? There's nothing out there. Like nobody wants to live there, you know? And, 
you know, but, it, but I could, you know, I could see that it was a good market, you know, that it was really well located. And so we pushed ahead on it. You know, we did our underwriting, we checked with the city, you know, confirmed everything, got, got our partners lined up and moved ahead on that one. And, you know, there's basically just a, a checklist that you have to run through, you know, you have to confirm a lot of stuff, you know, when you're doing development, you know, you got to, you know, make sure that you can actually build what you want to build on the land or, or you got to see, you know, what the land is, you know, zoned for, you know, if you have to rezone, you have to check that, you know, see what the city's, you know, appetite is for, you know, changing land use, if that's what you want to do, you know, confirm utilities, confirm, you know, all that kind of stuff, uh, which, which is a long process. That's uh, part of why you need a long due diligence when you're doing land development, because there's so much that you have to confirm before you can, you know, really do anything. Can you tell me the numbers with that deal? Yeah. So that deal, we, we bought the land for 1.5 million. We're going to be building 81 units on that land, 81 townhome style condominium units. I think our total project cost on it is about 18 million. And we're financing it with a essentially a builder's line of credit. So we're going to do a phase project, you know, we'll, we'll build a certain number of units. Uh, it's going to be units for sale. Um, so it's, it's kind of a large spec home development, you know, as it were. So, you know, we'll, we'll build, you know, a number of units, we'll sell, you know, we'll, you know, to replenish our line of credit, we'll build more, we'll sell. Cool thing about the financing that we lined up is that the bank actually has discretion to increase or decrease our line of credit based on the number of contracts that we have. So, you know, they've allocated a certain you know, amount of funds to build a certain number of units to us. But if we have contracts for more units than that, they have the discretion to allow us more funding. So, you know, we're, you know, we're locking up those units under contract. And, you know, as soon as we have those contracts, we turn those into the bank and they release us funds to build and we'll just, you know, plow them through. So that's Total project costs about 18, 18 million, including, you know, land, hard costs, soft costs, you know, developer fees, sales costs, all that kind of stuff. So pretty, pretty big project. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a huge project. So how do you go about getting, I guess, equity partners? Like how did you raise money for a deal when you have no experience and you're brand new to the industry? Yeah. So on that deal, um, I partnered with, uh, you know, a couple of, of partners here in the Austin market, you know, there, you know, there's a lot of real estate folks in Austin. So I found a firm here that, that does kind of, you know, equity and in, in their own deals. And I, I brought it to them, you know, and, you know, showed them the deal. It was like, Hey, you know, I've got this deal. You know, I had already, I had already structured it. You know, I, you know, underwrote it. I put together, you know, formal pitch deck, I had construction bids in place, you know, again, my partner and I put together a construction budget for it, you know, and, and we basically had the deal, you know, fully packaged, kind of presented the vision, went out, presented to this other group and, you know, they looked at it, they said, Hey, this, this looks like a solid deal. They grilled me pretty hard at the first couple of, of meetings, you know, like, Oh, did you, did you account for this? Did you account for that? You know, did you add in, you know, these fees and, and those, did you think about how you're going to overcome this issue and, and whatnot? Um, and I, you know, because of my prior experience at, at my W2 job and having done another major project as an employee, you know, I, I had 
all of those answers ready. You know, I, I had accounted for, for all of those factors. And so, you know, they, they looked at it and said, you know, like, oh, okay, you know, the project, not only does the project look solid, but, you know, this guy that's put it together, he knows what he's talking about. He's not just like some guy that doesn't know anything. You know, he's actually thought all of these things through. He's very meticulous. He's very detail oriented. Um, you know, actually the, you know, like the, the, the leader or the head of the company, the CEO, you know, he even told me, he said, you know, huh, kind of impressed, you know, you knew all the answers to these because when I first started developing properties, those were, you know, some of the, the gotcha questions that people asked me, you know, that I didn't always know the answer to. So he's like, you know, I, I think it'd you know, be good for us to partner up here because you clearly know what you're doing. So we partnered up there. They, um, they helped raise uh, the equity for the project. You know, actually, they, they raised the majority of it. And, uh, you know, they signed on the loan as well and just, you know, provided a, you know, kind of a, a name behind the project, which we needed at that point. You know, Iron Gall wasn't big enough, didn't have the track record or experience to go into a bank and say, you know, like, yes, we can absolutely handle this project. So, so they really helped with kind of getting, getting the wheels turning on that project, which has been really beneficial to us. No, that's super cool. And can you remind me again, like, are they, uh, like a, are they a private equity firm or who are these people who kind of partner with you on this one? Uh, they're not a private equity firm. They're just a, a local, you know, real estate, you know, real estate investment firm that, that do similar deals. Are they kind of like a mom and pop kind of deal or are they nationwide or what is their background? Uh, they, they focus on the central Texas market. So they've been, you know, in business for, you know, a long time. Uh, the CEO has been in real estate for, you know, 30, 35 years in this. And then he has a, uh, a partner that is younger, but you know, that is, that is coming up as well. It's participated in a number of projects. So they've done work nationwide, but you know, at the current moment, their firm focuses pretty heavily on the Texas triangle. Uh, which is part of the reason I, I went with them, you know, it's when you're trying to pitch a market like Taylor back in 2020, you really need a local partner that that understands what's happening in the local market that sees the path of progress that sees the growth because really you're going to make your your biggest money in development by staying ahead of the growth curve you know like by the time you know everybody and their mom is trying to get into a market you know it's kind of too late you know prices are inflated it's hard to get deals that pencil really you want to be you know a year or two ahead of that curve but you know looking at national statistics, you know, a lot of national firms aren't necessarily going to pick up on a lot of that data, you know, because there's a lot that happens just from being in a market, speaking to people in a market, you know, kind of talking to people at the city, kind of hearing, you know, what's going on, you know, what kind of the rumors are, you know, if, if anybody, you know, if any big companies have been kind of nosing around, it's very hush hush kind of in real estate, you know, like there are certain people that are very you know, braggadocious about what they're doing, but I found a lot of the the big firms, like really the people with, with a lot of money and really deep pockets, they're not announcing everything that they're doing because, you know, I mean, they don't want everybody to move into this, this market that they're trying to corner, you know, they want to kind of keep it on the hush hush and eventually, you know, people will find out about the market, but then they've already, you know, they've already got their projects going what they, you know, you know, where they want to be. So that was part of the reason I went with this firm is, is because they were more of a local presence. They could look at the market and say like, Oh yeah, we live, you know, right near here. You know, we live 15 miles away. We see the growth that's coming. We hear the rumblings. We know that, you know, this is going to be, 
you know, a market that is going to pop in the next two to three years. So that's why it was really beneficial to, to partner with those guys as opposed to like a, a massive private equity firm. And remind me again, how did you meet these guys? Uh, so it was actually invested in one of their deals, believe it or not. So you were an LP before? Yeah, I was an LP in, uh, in their first development deal, actually, which was Leander, Texas. So they're building a multifamily building there. And, you know, and I thought that that was, that was an interesting, you know, project to be in, you know, Leander's a really strong growth market. So I, you know, I, I invested with them and, you know, kind of, you know, I like their track record, I like their experience. So, you know, then when it came time to, you know, to present a deal of my own, I was like, all right, you know, let me, let me go to the guys that, that already know me a little bit as an investor. You know, they, they know I'm, I'm in the business. I'm serious. Just kind of worked out from there. That's cool. I mean, it's cool to think about like, you know, I think a lot of people actually tell me this too. They're like, if you want to get into syndications or, you know, large commercial deals, it doesn't hurt to start as an LP first because then you instantly build that network, you know? Yeah, it can be good to, to start as an LP. You know, you just get a little, you know, you can kind of get a taste of what it looks like. And, you know, there, there are some people that, that decide, you know, they say, oh, you know, this is too much work. I don't, I don't actually want to do all this work, you know, and, and some people, they're the opposite. You know, they say, oh, this like really excites me. You know, I, I want to do more of this on the active side. And, and there's a role for, for both kinds of people in, you know, in this market. You know, I mean, we need LPs. Our deals don't go anywhere without LPs. And we also need sponsors because the deals don't happen without sponsors. So, uh, you know, we need both. Yep. And so going back to what you said earlier, how you actually left your job once you started getting some traction with this business and you were getting paid enough that you could leave comfortably. I'm just curious, what are the different ways that sponsors get paid? Like as an example, when I'm flipping homes, I don't get paid till the project actually finishes. Whereas I know for sure, like there's no way you exited all your, your deals, right? The 81 unit property is probably still not... 81 units yet. So how do you get paid, especially when you're just getting started out through this method? There's a few different ways that you can get paid. Um, you know, there's various fees that you can collect. You know, there's acquisition fees, development fees, you know, asset management fees once a, once a deal is stabilized, you know, disposition fees, all that kind of stuff. You know, there's also equity payouts, you know, like, you know, like, you know, when you're flipping a house or, you know, whatever it is, when you complete a deal, you know, ideally get some cut of the equity that gets paid out. Those are, those are kind of the main ways. I've also made money just through consulting. So I've, I've helped other people in their projects, you know, people that had, you know, value add projects or development projects, you know, I, I've been able to come in and assist in various ways. You know, I have a pretty varied skill set. You know, I've been involved in, you know, kind of all the different aspects of, of development and, and acquisitions and disposition and everything at this point. So I'm able to kind of jump in and in a lot of different areas and say like, yeah, you know, hey, I, I can help you with this or I can help you with that. You know, hey, if you're if you're trying to close this deal, get it across the finish line and you need help with, you know, whatever it is, you know, talking to the city, you know, spearheading that, you know, coordinating with your civil engineer, you know, raising equity or handling legal or title or something like that, you know, I'm, I'm typically able to jump in and, and help with that. So I've gotten, you know, consulting fees as well. Uh, and those aren't deal specific. They are deal specific, just not to my deals. Um, so, but that's, you know, that's also helped me in growing, you know, my credibility, my business, um, because, you know, there's, there's deals that I, that I own, but, you know, there's also all of these other deals that I've worked on in various respects, you know? So it's like, Hey, you know, I've, I've been a part of, of multiple deals. You know, I've worked through these various processes. I've, you know, helped to solve these problems. 
And that just provides an extra layer of, of experience. Have any of your projects exited yet? Not my development projects. So we have one that's going to be exiting in the next couple months. That's a, a subdivision project. You know, most of these projects are long, multi-year projects, you know, anywhere from, from two years to, to five years. So they're just, you know, long projects, really. Now, typically when I structure new development deals, especially land entitlement plays, I actually don't go very heavy on fees. I have I have a couple deals where, where I do take fees, but mostly I structure it without my taking any fees and all my compensation comes on the back end. So I actually, I live pretty frugally. Um, as part of it, I don't have a very extravagant lifestyle. You know, I, I house hack actually, you know, I have a, a seven bedroom house. I rent out five of the bedrooms, you know, which covers my mortgage payment. And then, you know, I just, you know, I drive older cars, you know, like my cars of choice. I have two 1995 Saturns that I love, you know, and uh, so I'm pretty, you know, pretty low profile in my everyday life. Um, and really that's because I'm, you know, I'm trying to, to really grow my business, you know, so I'm rolling, you know, everything I can back into the business, you know, and, and it costs a lot to, to do a development deal, right? You know, so typically, you know, I've, I've read all the books and everything on, you know, investing with no money down, investing with low money, you know, using other people's money and all that. I think that, you know, that has its place, but it's not really a new development. It's pretty hard to go convince somebody to, you know, put up earnest money for a project. You know, I mean, when you start to get a little bit higher up in real estate, you know, you, you kind of got to have money to play the game, right? So, you know, nobody's going to be like, oh, well, you know, why would I give you 50% of the deal when you're not willing to come to the table with any of your own money, when you're not willing to, to do, you know, split, you know, the risk or anything like this. So typically I go out, you know, I, I find the deal, you know, or, or, you know, one of my partners finds the deal and, you know, I'll go, I'll put up the earnest money. I'll put up all of the due diligence costs, which can be, you know, anywhere from 10 grand, you know, which, you know, I had a deal where my due, due diligence and earnest money was only 10 grand up to like 150 K, you know? So, you know, I'm, I'm always, you know, and when you have multiple deals going, you know, there, that's a lot of money going out. So I plow everything back into the business and then I live really cheap, you know? So all, all of my payouts just go back into the business, back into to doing more deals, more due diligence, more earnest money, more, you know, architects fees and engineers fees and all that. And then the way I structure deals too, where I don't get paid until the very end, it, you know, I don't get a lot of, of cash at the beginning, but what I'm trying to do is, you know, structure it so that, you know, once the deals do start going full cycle, you know, start to be cashing out a lot more. Yeah. I mean, that's super exciting. I mean, I guess there is that expectation, right? That if you don't put in any of your own money, it, it, like like you said, it's kind of weird for someone to say, "Oh, why would I commit fifty thousand or hundred thousand to your deal if you're not even willing to put up the same?" Right? It, it makes it so easy for you as a sponsor to walk away if the deal goes bad. Versus if you had some of your own money in there, you would probably fight really hard to make sure the deal works well. Yeah, and that's another reason why I structure deals so that I don't get paid until the very end. Because you know, one of the things that I found in, in syndication and and I understand the argument for this. I don't have really a problem with syndicators taking fees. You know, I mean, I, I've done it myself. Um, but I think it's always best when sponsors and LPs have their interests aligned. And the sponsor's priority should always, in my opinion, be protecting the LP's investment. You know, so if you're, you know, if you're a syndicator and you're saying like, well, 
you know, the bulk of my compensation comes from the fact that I'm taking, you know, a 2%, you know, acquisition fee and a 2% asset management fee. And, you know, but then you do the deal on like a 90-10 split where, you know, the syndicator is only getting 10% of the equity or maybe a promote or something. I mean, they don't have as much incentive for the deal to, to overperform because, I mean, most of their compensation comes in the form of fees, which get taken before any kind of equity payback, any type of return to the investors. And, you know, I, I've talked to people, you know, I've talked to LPs that say like, well, I don't like to do deals with people where they have a lot of fees because they're not incentivized to perform. I'm like, yeah, that's true. But then you also don't want to give them a larger cut of the deal. So they kind of have to make their money through fees. So it's, you know, you got to, you got to balance it both from the GP and the LP side, you know, and, and oftentimes GPs and LPs kind of butt heads there a little bit. Um, but I've, I've found it pretty successful to, you know, just kind of tell LPs like, look, I'm going to give you a pretty, pretty heavy preferred return, but then a minimal cut of the upside, but I'm also not going to take any fees, you know? So, you know, basically all my compensation is tied to this deal performing at the level that I've said it's going to perform at. And every deal that I do, I believe so strongly in it that I'm willing to take my compensation in that way. And a lot of my LPs, you know, in my discussions with them, I found have been very you know, respectful of that. They say, okay, you know, sure, maybe I'm not getting, you know, 80% of the upside or something, but I also know that this investment is very secure. Like this guy is going to work really, really hard to make sure that this deal goes because, you know, I mean, even if, I mean, his, his entire compensation is based on the deal doing well, if the deal doesn't go well, he's just like going to have worked for free for two years. And my LPs always get, you know, all their money and their preferred return back before I get a single cent, you know, so I work like two years for free, you know, if nothing happens, you know, I, one of my deals that I'm doing, uh, which is, you know, it's a subdivision up near temple actually, that, you know, my, my LP is getting a 20% preferred return on that deal, uh, but no cut of the upside. And, you know, he was kind of like, eh, you know, like I'd like some upside, but, you know, kind of the way I, you know, broke it down for him was I was like, look, you know, yes, there is a lot of upside on this deal. And, you know, my partners and I stand to make, you know, a good amount of money on this. But think about it this way. Like you're so protected from downside risk, you get a 20% preferred return. And this, we could sell this deal at a 30% discount from our underwriting, you know, our underwritten exit price, and you would still get 100% of your money and 100% of your preferred return. Like we as the sponsors wouldn't make anything, but you would get that return that, you know, I've, I've told you you're in all likelihood going to get. And, you know, I mean, if the market crashes by like more than 30%, like, we're in like big trouble, you know, there's probably going to be bigger problems to worry about uh, than, you know, your deal underperforming a little bit, you know, and it's like, where else can you go where you're going to get a 20% return that you'll still get, even if the deal underperforms by 30%. And he was kind of like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Like this is actually so incredibly secure, you know, it's about as secure as you can get for, you know, a deal that's not alone, Right. Yeah, I mean it's basically a loan, right? Except you're they're not yeah, they're not in debt. They're um they're not in debt position. But yeah, I mean that twenty percent preferred uh return is amazing. I don't think I've ever heard of anyone doing that. But uh again, they have no upside, so it's kind of the balance. So I was wondering, since you've been doing this for about a year and a half now, have there been any kind of critical lessons learned 
or gotchas again that you have experienced since doing this? I think the biggest lesson that I've learned is don't like underestimate costs, I would say. And, you know, by that, I mean, I, I had one deal that I did, you know, it's actually the deal that I mentioned in, in Austin that I was doing where I partnered with a contractor on the deal and he was supposed to do the deal at cost. And what ended up happening is, you know, he, he couldn't perform on the deal in the way that he said he could. And, you know, we kind of ended up in a tight spot because he, you know, he said he was going to build at cost. We had underwritten with that in mind. And then we couldn't really go out and hire another contractor when it became evident that he couldn't perform because nobody was going to come in and, and build it at cost. You know, everyone was saying, you know, I'll, I'll build it with this plus my markup. So whenever I do a deal now, you know, even if I'm able to get, you know, materials cheaper somebody says they can build it for cheaper i always underwrite everything at market rate in case you know somebody can't hold up their end of the deal and you have to go out and you know hire somebody else you know and so i just i went through that experience and that was a huge learning experience you know i again i always try to get the best price i always try to you know get the best people in but i'm also prepared for for that to not work out you know and i don't want uh limited partners or anyone to ever suffer because, you know, it was like, oh, well, you know, we partnered with, you know, this group and they said they could do it for like 30% below what everybody else said they could do it for. And you get like halfway into the project and suddenly they can't hold up, you know, their end of the bargain. And then it's like, well, you don't want the whole deal to go south because, you know, one person or one team couldn't do their part. You know, you need to be able to go and, you know, bring somebody else in. And I guess, yeah, it's just, you know, that experience of, you know, sometimes people, talk a really big game, but then can't, can't hold up, you know, what they said that they could do. So you have to be prepared to cut people loose in the middle of a project. And I always, you know, have that in, in my, you know, contracts and partnership agreements too, is it's like, look, this is what is expected of every partner, you know, myself included. And I put in like, look, this is what I'm going to do too. And, you know, you also have the ability to remove me if I'm not doing what I said that I could do and the project is suffering. Um, because at the end of the day, the success of the project is more important than any one person's or one team's part in the deal. You know, it's, it's a team sport. There's lots of different people involved. Um, and LPs shouldn't suffer because like one guy who said he could do X, Y, and Z can't do it if everybody else on the team is doing what they said they were going to do. No, that's a really good tip because I've encountered that myself. You know, like I have worked with some contractors who would do a deal for me at Again, a very low price, um, most likely to win the bid. And then midway through, they have taken on too many jobs at these super low prices, right? Because you got to feed their team. And it means my project suffers. But as the owner, I'm like, well, can I really complain to this guy? I'm paying him half the price of what another contractor would charge me. And like you said, if I go with another contractor, they are going to charge me more. So the deal won't make sense anymore. And then I'll fail. So I might as well just wait for this guy to finish up whatever he has to take care of and then come back and work my project at half price. So it's better to just underwrite it at market and then assume that that's what they're going to charge you. And then if you happen to save money, great. But if not, uh, be quick to fire, right? Yeah. You know, those, those cost savings can be just kind of, you know, it's like the icing on the cake, right? Like every deal that I underwrite, I always kind of go to you know, the, the higher end of the spectrum, as it were, you know, like, a, you know, like, if, 
for instance, we're, you know, we're, we're getting a term sheet for another deal we're looking at, you know, out in, in Marble Falls right now. And, you know, we, you know, we got a range from the lender, right? You know, they said, oh, it's, you know, going to be between this and that for leverage and this and that for interest, you know? So we said, okay, like, you know, we're going to put the highest interest and, you know, the, the lowest leverage into our underwriting, you know? And if, if by some chance we're able to get, you know, a lower interest rate or, or whatever, like, well, that's great. That means our deal performs even more. But we know that, hey, even if it's, you know, this higher interest rate or this lower leverage, you know, we can still do the deal. It's still going to be successful. And when you're doing, you know, development deal where you've got a lot of earnest money and, you know, due diligence costs and everything on the line, you don't want to go in and say like, okay, I just, you know, put out 30K in earnest money and I just spent, you know, 40K in, you know, due diligence and engineering costs and everything only to find out that the bank's like, oh, like, sorry, actually, you know, like, I know we said we were going to give you 75% leverage, but, you know, you, we can really only go to 65. And I know we said that your interest rate was going to be, you know, 5%. It's actually going to be 5.5. And they were like, oh, my God, the deal doesn't make sense now, you know, and, you know, I'd rather just underwrite it and, and if necessary, pass on the deal. If it doesn't work, then like go spend 70 grand and be like, Oh shoot. Like, I guess I lose that now. <laughs> you know, you do less deals, but the deals that you do do, I think are going to be more successful because you've, you know, you've underwritten conservatively, which is hard to do in this market. I mean, things are, are really hot, especially in, you know, Austin and central Texas as a whole, like just everybody's trying to get into something. Everybody's buying. You just have to not let it get to you. You know, I've had people come to me and say, you know, like, oh, these terms that you're offering that you want to buy land at, like they're rookie terms. You're like completely unexperienced. You're never going to get a deal with these terms. You know, and I'm like, well, what terms are you looking for? They're like, well, nobody's going to give you, you know, 120 day feasibility. You know, you need to come in like close in cash in like 30 days. I'm like, well, anybody that comes to you and says, I'm a developer, I'll close 30 days in cash, like isn't very experienced, you know, because that's just taking a huge risk. And I mean, maybe if it's your money and you want to risk losing your money, that's fine. I can't take that risk with my LP's money. If that means I don't do the deal, like, I guess I won't do the deal, but I'm here to protect other people's money and to make them money. I'm not here to, to lose it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Andrew, this has been an amazing conversation. How can people find out more about you? Uh, so people can go to my website. It's www.irongallinvestments.com, I-R-O-N-G-A-L-L. Uh, you can also email me at andrew at irongallinvestments.com and you can find me on uh, LinkedIn and Facebook. Yeah. And just, you know, anybody that wants to learn more, you know, that's, that's interested in hearing more about our projects, you know, just, you know, shoot me an email, shoot me a message or something, you know, you can sign up for my investor list right on my website. If you want to hear more about uh, my projects, you know, have a discussion, you know, set up a call and, you know, I'm always looking to, to connect with people and, you know, just, see who else is in the business and who wants to do deals together and, you know, see, see what I can learn from people. And hopefully I can, you know, impart some of the things that I've learned and help people out. Awesome. Well, Andrew, thank you again so much for coming on the show. Congratulations on your amazing success. Great to see you again. Yeah. Thanks, man. Congrats on your move to Texas. We definitely need to, uh, to meet up next time you're in Temple, Colleen or something like that. You know, let's get lunch or something. Yeah, we will do. Awesome. Sounds good. I hope you like this episode. You can find the show notes with all the links on our site, everythingrei.com. If you like the podcast, please help us grow by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and telling your friends to listen as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.